All right, welcome to Making the Argument. Before we get started, I have a very important announcement. We have a brand new deal with GoodRanchers.com. That's right. If you go into GoodRanchers and you use promo code Nick and you sign up for one of their subscriptions, you're not only going to get $15 off, but do you remember the old deal where you got two pounds of ground beef with each order? Well, we just upped the game. That's right. You can choose top sirloin, salmon, chicken breast, or bacon now. Every single order you get on that subscription is going to come with free. Top sirloin, salmon, chicken breast, or bacon. You get to choose which one if you use promo code Nick. And again, $15 off on top of that. That's a savings of $480 in meat by signing up for one of those subscriptions. Not to mention the fact that if you are looking for a gift for someone that is impossible to shop for, you can go on to GoodRanchers.com and get one of their brand new gift boxes. Now, this is a limited time only offer. It's part of their overall Black Friday special. So go on to GoodRanchers.com to get more details. Sign up for promo code Nick and to get that deal and let's get on with the show. Is healthcare a basic human right? I mean, after all, here in the United States, we have so many rights that we enjoy. We have the right to assemble. We have freedom of speech, freedom of religion, the right to keep and bear arms. Why not add just another right in there for, you know, just to make things better, right? We're going to be answering this question on this episode of Making the Argument with Nick Freitas, where we make the arguments to defend a free society. So I don't know if you remember this, but it was several years ago, and there was an interview with former Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg. And she was asked if a different country or a person were to come to you and ask you about establishing a founding document for their own country, would you use the U.S. Constitution as a guide, as a good example to use? And she said no. Now, what I found surprising about this, despite the fact that she's a Supreme Court Justice, was that she actually referenced the South African Constitution as a better example of how to establish a modern government. And one of the reasons why she did that is because she was impressed by the fact that in South Africa, within their constitution, they had enshrined a whole series of rights that don't appear anywhere within our constitution. So it was rights to things like education, housing, uh, you know, food, and of course, health care. Right? These were enshrined in their constitution. And what this does is it actually begs the question because there is a debate going on right now. Everybody likes to use the term rights, but there is actually a deeper conceptual philosophical argument about the nature of rights. And what we're going to go through today is actually discussing what that debate is about. So we've got a couple questions we have to answer. The first thing that we have to do is we have to establish what are negative rights, what are positive rights, and then finally, how does this interact with healthcare? Because I think all of us agree we want a good healthcare system. We want healthcare to be affordable, accessible, state of the art. We want all of those things. There's no disagreement with respect to the sort of healthcare we all want to have access to. The biggest disagreement is how do we provide that and what is the true nature of healthcare with respect to basic human rights? So let's go ahead and get right into that. First thing we need to establish what are negative rights? Right? So a negative right is also known as an inherent or a God-given or a natural right. So when you're reading the founding documents, when you're reading the different de debates and discussions that were going on in the founding of the Constitution, when they're referencing rights, they are referring to negative rights. All right? So what makes something uniquely a, a negative right? Well, there's, there's a couple of attributes. All right? One of the attributes is that a God-given or an inherent or a natural right is something which is considered to supersede or to pre-exist government. 
right? So it's not that the government is granting you the right to your freedom of religion. It's not that the government is granting you your right to keep and bear arms. It's not that the government is granting you your right to peaceably assemble and petition your government. That's not a grant from the government. That is the government recognizing a right which pre-exists government. You inherently, you naturally have this right. And by government enshrining it into the Bill of Rights, it's not the government saying this is something that we're giving you and that therefore the government can take away. It's the government acknowledging limitations on its own power. So that is one of the key attributes of a natural right, right? It pre-exists government. It's inherent. You have it just by the nature of being a human being, right? What's another attribute, a very important attribute of negative rights? Well, essentially, it's your ability to exercise that right without infringement from somebody else and specifically without infringement from the government. So for instance, if I exercise my freedom of speech, right, that doesn't infringe on your ability to exercise your freedom of speech. You can listen to me, you can ignore me, right? But your actions have nothing to do with my ability to exercise that right, providing you're not hindering me. Right, so freedom of speech or the freedom of the press doesn't mean the government has an obligation to provide you a platform or to provide you a printing press or to provide you a newspaper. It simply means that the government is restricted from infringing on your ability to exercise your rights. Right, so really the only limitation on a natural right is you can't use your rights to impose or to um, infringe on somebody else's rights. All right, but when I, again, when I exercise my freedom of speech, that doesn't mean there's less freedom of speech for you, right? So that, that's another key attribute of a negative right is that my ability to exercise that right is inherent, it predates government, and my ability to exercise it doesn't compel you to do anything, right? As long as you're, you know, not infringing on my right, right? You, there's no compulsion there. I can exercise that right freely, and there won't be any consequences from the government coming in and punishing me as a result of exercising that right. Now, one important distinction that needs to be made here and is sometimes overlooked because you'll see people talking about, you know, I have a, I have a right to, again, freedom of assembly. I have a right to free speech. I have a right to keep and bear arms. That doesn't mean somebody else has an obligation to, again, provide you a printing press, provide you a gun, or to provide you a platform in which to speak. Right? It, it is very uniquely a restriction on the government using coercion, violence, the threat of force in order to prevent you from exercising those rights. Okay? But it doesn't save you from the consequences of them in other respects. So for instance, if I tell my boss what a punk I think he is, I could get fired for that. That doesn't mean my boss has infringed on my freedom of speech. It just means my boss is not obligated to hire and keep me employed if I'm conducting myself in such a manner in the workplace which violates my contract or violates the natural order of doing business with somebody. Okay, so it's important to make that distinction. These negative rights are a restriction on government power. It doesn't mean it's a restriction from natural consequences that just take place as a result of social interaction. Yeah, my boss can't punch me if I say he's a jerk, but that doesn't mean he has to continue to employ me, right? So there's a very important distinction there. But the, the thing I want you to understand about this is that the, the, a negative right, and this is, this is essential, a negative right is a restriction on government power to prevent me from doing something that I have an inherent right to do, and that me exercising that right does not take away or infringe on the rights of someone else, nor does it require somebody else to do something in order for me to exercise that right. 
right? So that, that's a very important distinction, and you're going to see why here in just a minute. So when we talk about rights in the traditional sense, that is what Jefferson and Madison and Adams and Washington and Locke and Montesquieu, that's the sort of thing they were talking about, okay? So how do we contrast that with the concept of positive rights? All right, so a positive right generally refers to some sort of good or service, right? So housing, healthcare, food, education, et cetera, all of these things um, are examples of, of so-called positive rights. And the unique attributes or characteristics of positive rights is that, A, they typically are a good or a service, right? So again, food is a good, right? Someone cooking the food for you is a service, right? Get, the MRI machine is a good. You going through you know, open heart surgery, the doctors and nurses are attending you, that's a service. So anytime we're talking about positive rights, it's generally associated with some sort of good or service that is now going to be provided to you. Now, positive rights differ from negative rights in a very key and substantive way because positive rights, by their very nature, require someone else to do something in order for you to exercise that right in order for you to have the benefits of that particular right. It, there, there is a requirement on someone else to essentially serve your needs. That doesn't exist in negative rights. It, do, it always exists within positive rights, right? What's another example of that? What it means is, is that positive rights by their very nature infringe on individual liberty. Okay, it's, it's a guarantee because the moment I say, the moment someone tells me that, okay, well, Nick, you have a right to healthcare. Okay, well, what exactly does that mean? Does it mean that I can go over to my neighbor who happens to be a doctor at two o'clock in the morning, bang on their door and demand that they see me? And if they refuse to see me, have they denied me my rights? If the answer is yes, well, then now that person, by the, by the virtue of them being a medical professional, by the fact that they have a particular skill set that I might need at that given moment, they are now essentially enslaved to my needs. Because if they don't provide me what I'm demanding as a part of my rights, they've now infringed on my rights, right? They're doing something wrong. They're doing something bad by refusing that service to me on demand and regardless of my ability to compensate or to reciprocate in some sort of trade or exchange, right? By, by their very nature, it takes out that aspect of voluntary exchange where I can ask you for a service or I can pay you for a service and now you are obligated by law to provide that service or you will be punished. That is a very, very important distinction between these two things. So if you're ever curious, if you're ever curious, are we talking about something that it's a positive right or a negative right? A simple question to ask is, does the right include a good or service? Does the right require someone else to do something on my behalf? If it does, it probably falls into that category of positive rights. And then the other important thing to remember about that is that if it is a positive right, then I will, by its very nature, have to infringe on somebody else's liberty in order to exercise or receive the benefit from that right. Okay, so that's the distinction. Negative rights, positive rights. So where exactly does that leave us with respect to the question of healthcare, right? So can we say that healthcare is a basic human right and generally what we mean by that is that traditional definition, a negative right, it is an inherent right, something that I am, I am uh, owed, right? And I would say that the answer is no, absolutely not. 
And a lot of people, when you say this, when you bring up this point, um, or, or you're in a, a conversation about this, you'll automatically be accused of not caring, not, um, not being empathetic, not having sympathy for the needs of others, not wanting to help in your community. All of those different arguments that will be used to try to characterize you as a mean, bad, no good, awful human being because you do not acknowledge healthcare as a basic human right. Because after all, and, and this you hear this from the left a lot, it's like, okay, well, if the only rights you have are the rights to be poor or the right to be sick, well, then you can't really live out, you really can't pursue happiness, so now you're being denied your rights. But again, keep in mind, what they're now saying is, is that you have to be obligated in some way, shape, or form, either the provision of a service, the creation of a product, or the subsidize of goods and services through taxes, you're now obligated to provide something in order to meet the needs of someone else. But the only way that can be done is by infringing on your rights, your liberties, your freedom. So it cannot be a right in the traditional sense that we all understand it. Now, it would be inappropriate if you're debating with somebody on this, it would be inappropriate to simply leave the argument there. Now, I'm not saying it would be inaccurate. It would be perfectly accurate to just to make that argument, come back and say that this is not a question of whether or not Healthcare should or should not be a right. It literally can't be a right in the way that we understand the definition of, of inherent or natural rights. It can't be. So what they're trying to do is they're trying to add a new definition. They're trying to essentially hijack a particular word, which has a lot of favorability within the electorate, a lot of favorability within the population, the idea of our rights. As Americans, we're generally very, very uh, protective of our rights. They're trying to hijack and use that word in order to achieve a particular policy objective. And this is the part where you've got, to, you've got to first make the argument, first make the distinction, get them to acknowledge that on some level, and then get it back to what is the purpose of having a discussion about healthcare in the first place? Because theoretically, the reason why we're engaging in a discussion about healthcare is not because we want to have some sort of esoteric conversation about the concepts of rights, it's because we all recognize that there is a need and sometimes a very dire and drastic need for access to quality, affordable health care. And so if that's the end state, well, then let's focus on that. But sometimes we need to first make the argument in order to get us in the right mindset so that we're not misusing particular terms simply because they might give us a, an advantage when we're talking to constituents or an advantage when we're on the news and all of a sudden we look like really nice people because we're saying healthcare is a right. So you lay that groundwork and then you focus on, okay, so how do we get good, affordable, you know, quality healthcare that is accessible to people? Because that's what we all want. That's the actual end state. That's the actual objective. And one of the things that we have to point out here in this discussion is that by simply declaring something a right, like if, if that's what they want, if they're, if they're just dead set on, no, I want healthcare to be referred to, to be recognized as a basic human right, then you can look at them and simply say, okay, great, it's a basic human right. Did that, did, did that declaration provide one hospital, one doctor, one nurse, one MRI machine, one you know, you know, prescription drug, did it provide any of the things that you actually need when we're talking about trying to get healthcare? No, it didn't do anything. It's a declaration. Maybe it makes you feel better, but it's, it's essentially the equivalent of Michael Scott walking into the office and saying, I declare bankruptcy. That does nothing. And what we should be focused on is how do we provide those goods and services associated with healthcare in order to get people what they need? 
And how do we do that in such a way that will produce the best outcomes while at the same time preserving individual liberty? Because if your only way to produce a particular good or service, if the only way you can imagine or contemplate of producing a good or a service is by infringing on the rights and liberties and talents of other people, I would say that there's a moral flaw with respect to that argument. And I think that deserves to be acknowledged. And so at the very least, you can break this down for someone where you say, okay, we, we established that maybe we have a disagreement with respect to how healthcare should be defined as it pertains to rights. But we can agree that we want everyone to have access to good, quality, affordable healthcare. So let's assume for a second that we could provide those things without infringing on other people's liberties and choices. Would that be a preferable? If we could do it, would that be preferable? Because at this point, they're on the horns of a dilemma. Because if they say no, then what they're essentially saying is no, they will not conceive of any way to produce the end state that they want unless they're infringing on the rights of somebody else. And that is inherently a morally flawed argument on some level. That is a morally flawed argument. If they say, okay, yes, let's, let's go ahead and conceive of that. What would that look like? Now you have your opportunity. Now you have your opportunity because instead of just focusing exclusively on the process of the definition of rights, you can get back to focusing on what produces the actual end state. And, and at this point, you, you have a multitude of examples of what happens when you have things like socialized medicine or government control of healthcare. Because ultimately, when people are generally talking about healthcare as a basic human right, what they're usually advocating for is heavy government intervention, if not a complete government takeover of the healthcare system. And this is the part where it becomes very easy to make comparisons that might cause someone to rethink that proposition. And I'm not just talking about examples like the healthcare situation in the UK or the healthcare situation in Canada, where you literally have a, a you know, parents with a child that is about to die that has the opportunity to fly their child over to the United States free of charge in order to get medical treatment that is more advanced than what they can receive in the UK and a British judge literally preventing them, using the force of the law to prevent them from even removing their child from that situation and trying to get better healthcare somewhere else. You can talk about all the cases in Canada where you have somebody that needs to get pre-screened for cancer or, or needs an MRI or needs some other sort of medical procedure or test, which is heavily rationed in a socialized system and being able to come down to the United States and get it right away. There's all kinds of examples along those lines. But there's another example I wanna throw out there for all of us to consider when we're talking about the provision of goods and services. Because ultimately this does end up being a debate about whether or not the government should heavily intervene or take over the system or whether we should allow the private sector to remain dominant with respect to the provision of goods and services. And this is the part where we can do a comparison, not just with healthcare, but every other thing in our life that we generally gain value from in the marketplace. So for instance, if the government were to take over cell phone production, does anybody think that you would end up with a more affordable, more effective, more capable cell phone? I would argue that most of us would not think that. I think most of us would think that if the government had taken over the process of developing and distributing uh, cell phones, in the, in the 80s or 90s, then we would still be stuck with a cell phone that was probably the size and weight of a brick, that had a battery life of 30 minutes, and did nothing except make phone calls. And then the overall price of producing that, if government spending is any sort of indication, would mean that it was 
incredibly expensive. And even if the government subsidized it to where you could get it cheaper, you're still paying for it through your taxes. You're not just paying for the phone. You'd be paying for the phone and you'd be paying the additional taxes in order to do the production. So we can look at different ways that the government has spent money or we can look at other industries. And we can ask ourselves, based off of what we know about how politics works, about how government spending takes place, about how government regulations can uh, affect and impede production of a service, <coughs> excuse me, based off of what we know about the fact that when the government takes over a service, it generally becomes far less responsive to customers because now the customers don't have another option. They're forced to go to the government for the provision of the good or the service. When we add all of those things up and we calculate it, we can come to some certain rational inferences about what it would look like for the government to take over healthcare in the way that the people that declare it to be a right are proposing. And it's perfectly appropriate for us to be able to bring up those distinctions and say, I don't think this is a good idea. In fact, I once had a conversation with a constituent. Um, it was very nice, but essentially very upset with me that I didn't want a nationalized healthcare system. And I remember we got into this argument and she asked me, she goes, Nick, with, with all the wealth we have in the United States, why can't we have universal healthcare? And I said, I actually don't have a problem with universal healthcare as long as the government doesn't run it. And what was fascinating was that she could not conceive of a system where the government didn't run it. So I started to ask her, what is your problems with the American healthcare system? Because on several accounts, we, the American healthcare system has flaws, but in other ways, it's absolutely cutting edge and ahead of the rest of the world. So what are the areas that you are most frustrated about with respect to American healthcare? And she said, well, prescription drugs are too high. I said, you know what? I agree. I do think they're artificially high. Do you know why they're artificially high? And her assumption was, is that it was greedy companies that were just trying to make a profit and didn't care if people lived or died. And what was interesting about it, I said, even if that's true, one company cannot prevent another company from competing with them. So if one company is essentially trying to control the marketplace because they're greedy and they don't care about people, well, then other companies will generally rise up in order to compete with them in order to provide products at a rate that is more affordable to a larger audience, to a larger customer base. We see that everywhere else in the economy and we would see it within pharmaceutical drugs. Why don't we? Well, the reason why is because the FDA and government intervention into the process. So you could argue that some of those restrictions, maybe you like them. Maybe you like the fact that the government is requiring them to go through certain tests before they can take a drug to market. But an interesting thing happened in the 1960s where it used to be that the FDA checked a drug to make sure that it didn't do harm and then they upped the threshold to say that not only can it not do harm, <coughs> excuse me, but it has to deliver on all of its promises. And what that did is it took the process of approving drugs from a several month or maybe a couple year process into multiple years and hundreds of millions, if not billions of dollars into the process, which meant that fewer companies could compete in that realm and ultimately, the way the FDA induced people to continue to produce the different you know, medicines that we all want is they gave them special patent privileges. So we're not talking about the typical patent process. You now get additional protections to where it allows these companies to have monopolistic privileges. I said, so your biggest problem with the pharmaceutical companies in this country and the price of prescription drugs is not a result of natural market forces, because I don't care how greedy a company is, if somebody competes with them and provides a better product or service at a more affordable price, they're gonna go out of business regardless of how greedy they are.
The, the whole purpose of a free market environment is that you have to compete with other people that can and will provide the same service if you're doing a bad job, unless, of course, the government comes in and gives you special protections and legally bans people from competing with you. I said, so your problem with prescription drugs is not a result of a lack of government interference, but inappropriate government interference. And she said, okay. I said, all right, what, what are the, what's another problem that you have with the American healthcare system? And she goes, well, access. Access is a problem, especially in some of our rural areas. We don't have as many services as we should have in order to help people that really need it. I said, you know what? I think that's a great point. So here's my question. Why do you think that is? Well, it, it turns out that the government has something they call certificate of public need laws. In other states, it's called certificate of need laws. So COPN or CON laws. And what this does is the government, the federal government came in and through a, a bill with the acronym is IMTELA, it requires hospitals to provide certain services regardless of the person's ability to pay. Well, the hospitals came back and said, well, if you're going to force us to provide services regardless of someone's ability to pay, we're going to go out of business. So the government set up a separate protection for them. And what that protection, the way it functions is that let's say I want to go into a rural area because I think it's underserved and I want to provide additional goods and services. Well, I can't just move in there and do that. I can't just go in there and based off of market demand, provide a good or a service. No, no, I need permission first. And I need permission not only from the government, but I need, I need permission from boards that are usually in part staffed by the very people that would be competing with me. So the way I like to give this example is, let's say you're a McDonald's and you want to move into a new town and open up a McDonald's, but before you do, you have to get permission from Carl's Jr. and Burger King. How badly do you think Burger King and Carl's Jr. want you to come in and provide a competing service? Well, they don't. And so it becomes harder to be able to get goods and services into certain areas, first because of Intel laws, and then secondly because of CON and COPN laws. So once again, your problem with access is, is rooted in the idea that the government is making it more difficult to provide medical services in those areas that need it. I said, well, what's, what's another area of concern? And the final one that she brought up had to do with the idea of, well, we need more doctors, we need more nurses, we need more medical professionals, because that's also an access issue. It's also a specialist issue. And I said, okay, well, did you know that starting in the 1920s, federal governments and the state governments started to get a lot more involved with respect to the accredi accreditation of medical schools? And this was done somewhat at the behest of powerful medical interests within the industry. So again, this is not something where I'm just saying that all businesses are good and wonderful and all trade associations are good and wonderful and they have nothing but their customers in mind. No, they wanna make a profit, that's true. But what they did in order to make that profit is they went to the government and they said, look, there's some charlatans out there. There's some snake oil salesmen. There's some schools that don't meet our standards with respect to what a doctor or a nurse should do. And state legislatures said, you know what? And, and, they, and then you had people go to the state legislatures and say, you know what? We want restrictions on what different medical professionals can do or what services they can provide. I said, and, we, and we've been in a long battle here in Virginia on things like COPN laws. We've been involved in a long battle on trying to allow nurse practitioners to be able to provide additional services. We've been in a long battle to try to allow a doctor in another state to be able to provide telemedicine care to patients here in Virginia. And during COVID, 
That became absolutely critical for people to be able to get medical advice over the phone, over a Zoom call, without having to leave their house. But it was government restrictions that made a lot of that impossible. I said, so once again, whether it's restricting the number of medical schools that can get set up, because it is incredibly expensive to set up a medical school, whether it's restricting the supply or, or the future supply in order to benefit the current supply, or whether it's government granting special privileges in order to try to make up for the unintended consequences of their, 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 their feel-good policies. I said, the reason why you don't have the access to the specialists that you want, to the doctors that you want, to the nurses that you want, or the reason why you can't get the care at the price that you could afford is in large part due to the government restrictions which artificially restrict the supply in a way that is ultimately dangerous. Yes, it might have been done, and it might have been advertised as a way to protect the public from charlatans. But as a result, one of the unintended consequences was you've artificially restricted the supply. So now we don't have access to the same number of doctors, nurses, and other healthcare professionals that we would have if we allowed for there to be more schools, if we allowed there for there to be more training, if we allowed for there to be reasonable enlargement of scope of practice. I, I think it is amazing to me that a Special Forces 18 Delta, a Green Beret that goes through extensive medical training, can go overseas, and while they're in Iraq or Afghanistan or the Philippines, they can do stitches and they can deliver a baby. They can even do some veterinarian services. They can provide geriatric care. And oh, by the way, they can fix a sucking chest wound under fire while calling in a nine-line medevac in order to save your life. But if they come back to this country in order to provide your kids stitches because they fell off their bike and you don't want to drive to the emergency room and get a huge insurance bill, now they've broken the law. Now they've done something criminal. I said, so once again, the, the very solution that you're attempting, the very, the very policies that you're attempting to use to fix the problems that you perceive and that are, are, that are accurate is only going to make it worse because we're not acknowledging what the problem was in the first place. And all we have to do is look at almost every other sector of the economy, what ends up happening is that the more competition, the more availability of goods and services, the more people that you have producing the thing that consumers want, need, and demand, the quality goes up and the prices go down. If you exchange that for some sort of government monopoly, do not expect quality to increase and prices to go down. It is usually the opposite because ultimately now the government is not spending their money on something that they need. They're spending your money on something you might not even be getting a service for. And that creates waste. It creates fraud. It creates abuse. And the more the government takes it over and monopolizes the process, the less opportunity that you have to get what you really need from somewhere else in the marketplace because the government, either through heavy subsidization or through legal prohibition, has prevented you from getting what you need. So let's wrap all this up. There's a couple of things that we, we need to keep in mind. So going back to the initial point, and, and this is critical, this is the starting point of the conversation whenever the discussion leads toward this idea that healthcare is a basic human right. And this is what I want you to come back with, right? If you remember nothing else from this podcast, remember this. You cannot have an inherent right, a natural right, to the labor, talents, or property of someone else. You can work for it, you can trade for it, you can negotiate for it. You can even convince them to give it away for free. But the moment you demand it through coercion or violence, you become a thief. 
And no amount of political posturing or, or feel-good narratives can change that fact. So ultimately, this is not a question of whether or not healthcare should or should not be a right in the traditional sense. By definition, it cannot be a right. It cannot be a right. But none of that means that it is not an incredibly important issue and one that we can work together in order to find solutions in order to provide the sort of healthcare that we want and the sort of access and affordability that we want. But the larger debate from there is gonna to have to go into historically, who is the better provider of human needs? When you look at your phone, when you look at your car, when you look at the food on your table, when you look at the grocery store that you go to, when you look at the TV that you buy, when you look at the camera that you get, when you look at the books that you read, all of that comes from the private sector. And all of it over time has increasingly become better quality at lower prices. The computer that you're watching this on, the phone that you're listening to this on, the radio in your car, all of that 50 years ago wouldn't have had a fraction of the capability, but it would have consumed a larger part of your income. So how did we get it to where it was even more accessible, more affordable, and higher quality? Competition in the marketplace. Every single time that has been the solution. Competition with the marketplace. More choices, more options, more producers, not fewer. And if you're going to exchange what we know about every product and service, and you're going to try to pretend that, well, healthcare is so different that we can't apply the same rules, the question I'm going to ask is, why, and can you please demonstrate to me somewhere where your solution produces better results? Because when I look at the UK, when I look at Canada, I don't see a better overall system than what we have in the United States. And when I look at the flaws within the United States system, the legitimate flaws, I don't see a lack of government interference and involvement. I see an excess of it. And so we shouldn't, be, we shouldn't be allowing politicians to create problems and then offer themselves the solution. Because I will tell you this, there, there, is, there is one group of people, there's actually two, there's two groups of people that generally benefit from this sort of government interference. One, it's the politicians. Because if you are now absolutely dependent upon your elected officials for the healthcare that you receive, they're no longer serving you. You better serve them or else you're not going to get what they're offering you. The other side is unscrupulous businesses that have decided that it is easier for them to stay afloat. It is easier for them to provide a product or service, not by appealing to you as the customer, but by appealing to politicians. And that is not the sort of system that you want. You are not going to get a better, superior, more affordable quality product from someone that is not concerned about you because they can go to a politician and they can compel you by force to use their product or service. That leads to a lack of innovation, a lack of creativity, fraud, waste, abuse. So what we want is to provide as many options within the marketplace as possible. Now, does this mean you're going to come up with a system where somebody with a lot of money might have access to a, care, to a level of care that somebody with less money has access to? Yes, but that's unavoidable. You cannot get that out of the system. If someone makes more money and they want to use it for a particular procedure, they should have the right to do so. Now, does it mean as a society that we should come alongside people that need that additional assistance through charity, through help? Absolutely, I think we should do that. But the moment you put the government in charge of doing it, you reorient the medical industry's attention from customers and patients to lobbyists and government. And that is not going to give us the sort of healthcare system that we want. So wrapping it all up, 
Again, it's not whether or not healthcare should or should not be a right. It cannot be a right under the traditional definition. The moment you try to claim it's a right, you have essentially enslaved people to your will and your desires. So you have infringed on their liberty in order to get yourself what you think you want. And the worst part about all of this is that even if someone, even if someone gets what they want and you enshrine it in law as a right and you have the government take it over and provide it like they all want, you end up with, a, you end up with an end product that doesn't produce what we all thought is what we wanted, which is quality, affordable healthcare. So there are things that we can do, but it's very important to be able to make this argument because I, for one, am getting very, very tired of someone telling someone like my mother, who is a registered nurse, who used to go not only within the United States, but to foreign countries and provide medical service free of charge because she genuinely cared about people. I am tired of the left calling her a mean, unsympathetic, privileged person. Not because she doesn't care, not because she doesn't want to help, but because she's not willing to hand over her freedom to a government entity and to a room full of politicians that will mismanage it in order to enrich and ensure their position instead of providing the best care possible to the people that genuinely need it. Once again, thank you for joining us on Making the Argument. Also, if you want to share something like this with somebody else, please give us a, give us a five-star review, give us a share. The other thing is, we talked about this as well on the Y Minutes. If you haven't gone to the Y Minutes, check that out. On the Y Minutes, we did a version of this, but in three minutes, all right? So it was a very quick once over the world on this idea of is healthcare a right? So if you've got that friend with a short attention span and you wanna give them that video, send them to the Y Minutes, they can look at it there. And then if they want more information, if they want more of a deep dive, that's what making the argument is about. This is where we actually delve into some of the details in order to provide you the arguments that you need to defend a free society. Once again, thank you for joining us and we'll see you next episode. Once again, thank you very much for listening. If you want to support the show, again, one of the best ways you can do it is by heading over to goodranchers.com with promo code Nick. You're going to get $15 off. You sign up for one of those subscriptions and you're going to get up to $480 of free meat with that subscription. You get to pick top sirloin, salmon, chicken breast, bacon. It is all up to you. Plus, if you're looking for gifts to get for the people that are impossible to shop for, goodranchers.com also has gift boxes. You need to act quick. This is part of their overall Black Friday special. So head on over to goodranchers.com, use promo code Nick. And once again, thank you for listening.